Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. What's up, everyone, and welcome to The Reluctant Historian, the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. I'm your host, Liz Lawson, and this is our Reluctant Historian, Dakota Lawson. On this podcast, I'll tell him a story from history, and he'll share his unapologetic thoughts and opinions. So, if you love history, or you absolutely hate it, this podcast is for you. On today's episode, we are talking about the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu. That's exciting. <laughs> Let's get into it. Uh... All right, so sit down, buckle up, and get ready to listen to the history of the Spanish flu. territory on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement in recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. All right, Dakota. So last week we talked about the golden nugget. These are good things that have happened to us recently or fun things that we've discovered. What is your golden nugget this week? Yeah, so I just launched my first episode of uh, the Comfortably Average show on YouTube. So I'm very excited about that. It's a video game news show and uh, you know, it's, a, it's only about three minutes long. So yeah, if you want to check it out at the com- at Comfortably Average on YouTube, feel free to, you know, follow my plug. <laughs> and I was just thinking, I was like, wow, this is like a shameless plug. For- oh, and I'm, I'm so shameless. I'd no shame is in this body. <laughs> I do know that. Yeah. Um, it is good though. I enjoyed watching your new show and I was really impressed with what you had produced. Well, you have to say that you're my wife. What is your golden nugget? Right. Okay, so my golden nugget this week, I started and finished a documentary on Netflix called The Night Stalker. Yeah, so I I know you were watching that while I was editing. What what do you think of it overall? I loved it. I you know I love true crime. Yeah. And I feel like I know a lot about serial killers. Yeah. Uh but I didn't know about this guy, so I'm not gonna give any spoilers. I thought that the documentary was done really well. It was an interesting way of showing the story. It was unique to, I think, different... I hadn't seen documentaries done that way before, and I really enjoyed the way that they told the story. And the guy, the serial killer, he is a fucking creep. Oh, really? Yes. And, like, I'm not usually creeped out by true crime, and this story was very creepy and very disturbing. And then they showed pictures of him, and he just, like... He straight up looked like evil. So I have a question. So I follow a YouTuber and she was talking about how she watched The Night Stalker and then wasn't able to sleep. Did you have trouble with that at all? Or was it 
totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, because you were home, right? So right. I'm just waiting to see what's going to happen when you have to do your overnight shift and I'm by myself with the dogs. Yeah. Well, like yesterday when you didn't get home till 10 mm-hmm. and all of the dogs were freaking out and losing yeah. their mind over nothing, yeah. I was terrified. Yeah, yeah. So I took that big wooden mask thing off uh, the wall that I have from Africa. It's like a huge <laughs> baseball bat type thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like walking around the house with it thinking, yeah, like, you know, if somebody comes in and tries to hurt me, this yeah. will absolutely maybe protect me. Just going to beat the shit out of them with a piece of Africa. <laughs> that was my plan. Yeah. And Ollie, you know, Ollie, she's so scared of everything. So she was just like, Mom, why are you walking around with this big bat? And she was running away this from This is me. a normal behavior. I know. So, yeah. yeah, I guess we'll see what happens when you do an overnight. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get into this topic of the Spanish flu. Okay. So can I start by saying... Uh, why my hesitation at the beginning of the episode was, as someone who doesn't enjoy history, when you say, we're going to learn about the Spanish flu, I go, okay. So, uh, but you have been doing a good job about making these interesting. Mm-hmm. So, the initial hearing the Spanish flu, I'm like, eh. But what's, but, so, like, what's your hesitation to that? I don't know. I mean, it's just a historical thing that I'm just not, like, I'm not, like, it, I think there's very few things in history that have, that have happened that I would go, okay, you know? So, so of course, I think I'm going to be hesitant about a lot of things, but you've done a good job in the past two episodes of presenting some interesting facts that actually happened in there, pulling the cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm hesitant, but excited. Interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about the um, Spanish flu last week, but we were talking about disturbing the Bastille because I thought it was pretty relevant to the Capitol Hill. Um, but the reason that I want to talk about the Spanish flu is because of COVID-19. And I guess a lot of us are still pretty obsessed with that pandemic right now. But when it first occurred, when COVID-19 first happened, I was thinking about how there are a lot of big changes that happen to the world when we have huge events like this. And I was thinking back to the Black Death and the bubonic plague and how there were so many changes in society that happened because of that, like the fall of feudalism, uh, the decline of serfdom, and then the rise of the middle-ish class. But that happened in the 1300s, and so I wanted to look at something more relevant and more modern. And it was really eye-opening. There was a lot of things about the Spanish flu that I didn't know, and I think that we kind of forget about that pandemic. I think that it's just kind of a footnote, and people think, oh yeah, like we had World War One, and we had the 1920s, and this huge economic boom, and we kind of forget that there was this blip, and literally it was a blip, because it only lasted a couple months, I mean, sort of. But we forget that there was this huge pandemic that literally killed 50 million people. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. I literally never think of the Spanish flu, ever. <laughs> That's so, what I mean. Okay, before we get into that, though, I just want to go back a little bit to uh, serfdom. Did you say the rise of serfdom or the decline of serfdom? Decline of serfdom. Uh, I was hoping it was the rise of serfdom. I was just picturing some California surfers or something like that. It just... We gotta catch that wave, bro. It's spelled a little different. S-E-R-F instead of S-U-R-F. Wow. Something like a history lesson to make me sad. Okay, um, yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so another thing that I thought was really spooky. Okay. So spooky. Spoopy. Spoopy. It's spooky. Is that what the millennials are saying these days? That is what us millennials are saying. The Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920, and we're living in 2020. It's spooky. That is so spooky. Except not, because 1918 is, like, really when the Spanish flu was. So. Yeah, so, like, I mean, if it would have happened in 2018, maybe it would have been more spoopy. 
Maybe. So the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 was the deadliest pandemic in modern history. Oh. And it's the second deadliest pandemic following the plague of the 1300s. I have heard of the plague. Yeah, it killed half the population of Europe. Really? Yeah. Do you know what the population size of Europe was at the time? I mean... Not off the top of my head. <laughs> that's fair, right? <laughs> that wasn't a question that I'm like, how the fuck don't you know that? <laughs> yeah. But could you imagine, like... I do this experiment with my students every time we start talking about the plague and I get the mm. whole class to stand up and then I point out half of the students and make them sit down and I mm. say, yeah, if this was the plague, th- these are the people that would have survived. The Spanish flu was a novel virus, so very similar to COVID-19 in that it is new to humans. Oh, okay, okay. I want to stop here for a second. Okay. Because okay. it's pronounced novel. Yes. Okay. I've been very confused about this, and I always forget to ask this, but I always see it written, the novel coronavirus. I thought it was novel coronavirus, like, oh, how novel of it. I'm like, what? What What the fuck does that mean? What does novel mean? New. Oh, why don't they just say that? Oh, the new coronavirus, not the novel. I think it's a scientific thing. You're right, so I just wouldn't understand. That's true. (laughs) Novel viruses often start in animals, so another example of a novel virus starting in an animal, HIV, is linked to primates, and COVID-19 is linked to bats. So the Spanish flu is also linked to some sort of animal. The one in 1918 began as a bird virus, then spent some time in an intermediate host, maybe a pig, maybe a horse, and then it jumped the chain to humans. It infected an estimated 500 million people worldwide, which is about one-third of the planet's population, and killed an estimated 20 to 50 million victims. 20 to 50 million? That's a that's a wide margin. Well, wait till you hear this next part. Oh, okay. Um, there are some estimates that there were 100 million worldwide deaths, which would have been around 3% of the world's population at the time. Were the people that were doing this these studies drunk? Like, no. between 30 and 100 million? That's a lot. I know. Well, so record keeping wasn't very good at this time period right? Uh, so i don't know why that explains why there were such discrepancies but basically they aren't keeping accurate records so most people think 20 to 50 million but there's a chance it could have been 100 million that's wild yeah which was actually more than the number of civilians and soldiers killed in world war one holy shit so it was first observed in the United States, but they also saw it in Europe and parts of Asia, and then it moved rapidly around the world, and at the time there were no effective drugs or vaccines to treat this deadly strain of the flu. In order to prevent spread, citizens were ordered to wear masks, schools, theaters, and businesses were closed, and bodies piled up in makeshift morgues. Well, just like last week, let the bodies hit the floor. Yeah, just like that. <sighs> So what is a flu? Uh, it's a virus that attacks the respiratory system. It's highly contagious, spread through coughing, sneezing, and even talking. We have flu outbreaks every year, and every year it varies in severity, and we don't know which type of the virus is spreading because flu viruses can mutate really quickly. When we get our flu vaccinations every year, researchers and scientists hypothesize which influenza virus will be most common, um, but they don't actually know. So sometimes they might miss it. They might think that a certain virus is going to end up being really popular well not popular but spread more quickly and they might realize oh we predicted wrong but most of the time their predictions are spot on so if their predictions are wrong when i go to the clinic to get my shot every year there's a chance that what they're injecting me with might not do anything just because they're they might get it wrong i don't actually know how an actual flu vaccine works i'm sure you must get some sort of immunity from it but yeah like they would be vaccinating you against a certain strain and if that's not the most virulent strain that year then you wouldn't be vaccinated against it that's wild yeah it is that was a fact that i thought was really interesting yeah yeah i didn't know that now i'm like gonna go and get my vaccine i'm gonna be like is this even gonna work (laughs) 
Please don't become an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> well, you heard it first, guys. I am an anti-vaxxer now. In a typical year. I'm joking. That's a joke. In a typical year, the flu season runs from late fall to spring, and more than 200,000 Americans are usually hospitalized for flu-related complications, dependent on the strain. Worldwide, the World Health Organization estimates that between 290,000 to 650,000 people die of flu-related causes, um, but right now, 1.8 million of people have died from COVID, and 20 million to 50 million to maybe 100 million died from the Spanish flu. When that, that was back in the day? No, that's did? right now. That's so right this, now. This, every right every year? Yes. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, I, I heard people die of the flu, but, you know, if I were to get the flu, which I have, obviously, I don't, I'm not like, ah, this might be it, guys, you know? Well, yeah, we've kind of, I guess, just lived with the flu for so long that we don't really necessarily think that it's going to kill us anymore. But if you have underlying respiratory conditions or if you're old we're sickly. Mm, you're all <laughs> I know. So, Burn. why do you? That's why I do always get my flu vaccination. Yeah, I'm not. I'm none of those. I'm in my twenties. I'm going to live forever, <laughs> and I get vaccinated every year too. The flu pandemic of 1918 was different from flu pandemics or flu strains that we see typically. It occurred when an especially harmful new influenza strain, for which there was little or no immunity, appeared and spread quickly from person to person around the globe. An epidemic, so we might hear this word a lot, it's a disease that has more cases than usual in a local region or community, and it doesn't make reference to how deadly it is, so you can say something's an epidemic, but you're not saying that lots of people are dying from it, or you could be referring to the fact that tons of people are dying from it. An epidemic is when it's only in a small, smaller area, yeah. whereas a pandemic is worldwide, Exactly. Right? Okay. Yeah, you got it. You took the words right out of my mouth. Man, it's like I'm the history teacher now. It's like Now that. let me teach you about Pokemon. No. <laughs> The first recorded instance of this flu it appeared in April 1918, and it was recorded in a document called Public Health Reports. This was a document that was put up every week by the U.S. Public Health Service. These public health reports were put out every week to help doctors stay up to date about diseases in America. So in this document, they talk about this mysterious flu, and I'll quote what it says. On March 30th, 1918, the occurrence of 18 cases of influenza of severe type in which three deaths resulted was reported in Haskell County. Kansas. So the first cases of this flu appear in Kansas in the United States. Oh, when it went elsewhere, did they say it's not in Kansas anymore? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I hope they did. Uh, this report was made by a doctor called Loring Miner. And his reporting is the first recorded instance of a physician warning about an outbreak of this disease. Um, he was surprised by the large number of deaths in one day. And the large number of cases in one day. And that's all that we really know about the Haskell cases. They don't really say anything else about it. But he was talking about these diseases and that's the first time that it was recorded. And so that's where many medical historians... So did you know you could be a medical historian? Me? I can? <laughs> a person could be a medical I historian. I am a medical historian. Yeah, that was like... When I found that little tidbit of information, I thought that was really cool. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Wait, how how does one become a medical historian? I mean, I think you'd probably, the same way that you become a historian, you go to school, you do <sighs> research. I was hoping there was an easy way to do it. <laughs> Sorry. So they believe that this is where it began in the United States, in rural USA. So this was a farming community. Uh, they lived in sod houses, grew grains, raised cattle and pigs. Oh, cool. So it makes sense that, that it would have spread from those farm animals to the humans. Mm -hmm. Another important thing for this story is that near Haskell, there was a U.S. Army camp called Camp Funston. 
Camp Funston? Yes. Camp Funston? Yes. Did the person who named the tennis court oath come up with this title too? We're going to Camp Funston. <laughs> I hope so. In 1918, this is the tail end of World War I. America was fighting in World War I at this time. They hadn't been at the start, but then they joined. And so there are reports of soldiers from Camp Funston going back and forth from camp to Haskell. So there's a lot of transfer of people, and therefore if they're sick, they're transferring the disease. In early March, the first soldier at Camp Funston reports a flu. The problem with this is that army bases are really excellent places to spread disease. They're, you know, cramped close quarters, there's crowding, overcrowding. Um, if you're in the actual army hospital itself, you are in like a gym-like room and you're separated from the other sick people by just like a sheet. Um, and so there's tens of hundreds in, of people in these overcrowded rooms that are sick, coughing all over the place, which is how we know the, the flu is spread. Um, and then it's just like a sheet between them. You know, as someone who didn't go to camp as a child, I can tell you that uh, clearly you shouldn't go to camp because you get viruses there. So an army camp is a little bit different from like a summer camp. Yeah, but I didn't go to either, and I don't. I didn't get the flu. That's virus, true. Okay, right? so don't go to summer camp. Don't go to army training. Yeah, okay. that's the lesson that I want our listeners to take away from this week. Perfect. Don't go to camp. Okay, you'll get diseases there. So wait, do you actually like? Do you know what an army camp is? And uh, do they do training there? Yeah. Oh, to become better soldiers. Yeah. I guess I do. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> uh, we have fun. Uh, um, this this part of the flu, so the one in early 1918, the spring of 1918, looked like a normal flu. It was more contagious and virulent, but most people recovered with rest. And the flu also didn't stay in Kansas because as the troops, the American troops, are starting to move all over the world, cases begin to appear following their deployment. And so American troops carried this virus with them to Europe, and it swept through the troops that were fighting in Europe. An estimated three-fourths of the French military were infected in the spring of 1918, and as many as half of the British troops. But the first wave wasn't super deadly. According to public health data, which is limited from this time, as we already know, yeah. uh, mortality rate was similar to the seasonal flu. And then summer happened, and it seemed like it went away on its own. Because most viruses, um, and especially the flu, they don't do well in hot weather. But however... People were still carrying the virus around in their bodies, and it reawakened in the fall of 1918. The second wave, which was from basically September to November, so it was like literally three months, saw a huge rate of mortality. It had the power to kill a perfectly healthy young person within 24 hours. Um, and this was a highly contagious wave, and victims died within hours of developing symptoms. Their skin turned blue, and their lungs filled with fluid, which caused them to suffocate. Young person? Yes. I'm young. Mm-hmm. I'm 20. I'm, I'm going to live for it. You're not 20. I'm not actually 20. That, I'm in my 20s, I meant to say. She's not She's not dating someone who's 15 years younger than her. so <laughs> awkward. And also, I'm not dating you. What? <laughs> okay, carry on. So they think that the virus that the Americans had taken with them to Europe mutated when they were there. And that's common for the flu. It mutates very rapidly because all of these soldiers are going everywhere around the world the virus was spread really easily and so many people died that it actually caused the life expectancy of people in america to plummet by 12 years what that means is that if you're looking at the average the average age of death for that year typically you would be seeing like oh 70 you know, 72 and then you'd look at 19 and it would be like 60 would be the average age of death holy crap yeah but, but like it doesn't mean that like not everyone's gonna die at 60 it's right. like a 
you know, there's just a lot of people who are dying. At yeah, 60. exactly. That's that'd be fun. Just be like, oh, I'm 59. And my birthday's in a week. Am I gonna die? Uh, so talking about the name, do you have any guesses why they call it the Spanish flu? America was trying to blame the Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, knowing what we know about their current situation, yeah, that's I, not like... I, well, I'm just over here thinking, while you're telling me this story, I'm just thinking about Trump, how he's like, the China, the China virus, and I'm over here thinking, oh, bro, the Kansas, the Kansas virus. Right? You know? So, that's not why it okay. was called the Spanish flu. Why was it called the Spanish flu? So, again, remember, we're at the end of the World War One here. Yeah. Countries don't want to talk about what's actually happening they're in their home base and they don't want to report on the numbers of deaths in order to keep the morale high, right? They don't want to be like, everybody's dying. They don't want people to get worried and scared. As well, countries at war don't want to report how many people and soldiers are dying of the flu because it would make them look weak. And so both sides of the war, England, France, America, Canada versus Germany, Austria, Hungary, they don't want to look weak. And so they both have wartime censors who covered up news. But during World War One. Spain was a neutral country and they had a free media that covered the news and they covered it from the start. It was first reported in Madrid in late May of 1918 and they talked about how their King Alfonso got really, really sick. And so the fact that so many people in Spain were reporting about it, it gave a false impression that it, that's where it came from. They thought that that's where it had started. It gave rise to the name the Spanish flu. And interesting, the Spanish people didn't call it the Spanish flu, obviously. They thought that it came from France, and so they called it the French flu. Oh. So really, it's not the Spanish flu, it's the America flu. I guess so, yeah. Wow. The Kansas flu. Yeah, the Kansas flu. One of the unusual aspects of this flu was that it struck down so many healthy young people, and most of the time you don't see that in the flu. You see, like, a U-shaped craft, so lots of people that are young, and then the healthy people kind of survive it, and then it comes back up to the older people dying, so it makes a U on the graph. But this time, it made a W, so it came down... They went peaked again in the middle and then went down and peaked again on the old people. So you'd have like a W shape in the graph. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was uh, unusual because it struck down so many healthy young people. And this is a group that's normally resistant to this type of infectious illness. It attacked a number of World War I servicemen. In a normal seasonal flu, usually it's the most vulnerable the young and the old that are going to die. But with this flu, there was also a huge spike in the number of otherwise healthy 25 to 30 year olds in the prime of their life. And so we have lots of reports of eyewitnesses, which talk about men coming to the hospital or wherever they are in the morning and dying in the afternoon. And this made the medical establishment at the time really worried because it was not only the age, but also how they were dying. that was really concerning. They were struck with blistering fevers, nasal hemorrhaging, and pneumonia. And patients would drown in their own fluid-filled lungs. Oh, Fuck. Mm -hmm. That sounds like the worst kind of hell. Yeah. yeah. What was the thing about the nasal... Hemorrhaging. Nasal hemorrhaging. So what does that mean? Hemorrhaging is like you just can't stop bleeding. Oh, so they're just like massive nosebleeds mm -hmm. and then they were drowning it. Yeah. Fuck. Right. So young people are dying and they're dying in this horrific way in like a day. Can you imagine being the doctor or the nurse or whoever had to see this? Just like... How traumatizing that would be. Well, I think it's probably very similar to how our healthcare workers are also super traumatized by what they're seeing with the yeah. COVID-19 cases. Absolutely. Speaking of doctors, uh, they were unsure of what caused it or how to treat it. So unlike today, we have vaccines, we have antivirals, we have treatment courses on how to help people who are sick. But at this time, they didn't have those. And so, you know, they were like, well, what's causing it and how do we treat it? So they thought that maybe it was the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter that was causing this flu. They believed that the planets 
having influence on us would cause people to get sick. And that's actually where the name influenza comes from. So the Italian word influencia, meaning influence. Mm -hmm. And so we have the word influenza because it was the idea that the planets being in misalignment or in a specific alignment would make us sick. Sounds like some sort of hippie shit to me. (laughs) And so they also had no idea how to treat it. They prescribed laxatives, alcohol... Here, shit it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So laxatives, alcohol, and bloodletting. One cure or treatment from the British Surgeon General suggested having a glass or two of champagne a day. Drink Um, drink to forget that you're going to die of the flu. And bloodletting because they believed that blood removal would also remove the disease. Well, if you can't, if you don't have any blood, you can't choke on it. I guess so. (laughs) So British, okay, this is hard to say. British surgeons tried it on soldiers and they didn't really have any luck with that. And rather than thinking, oh, the bloodletting isn't working, they were like, oh, we probably just didn't take enough blood out of them. So they just took more? I'm not sure if they went on to it, went on to take out more blood, but they were like, no, bloodletting is it. That's how we're going to cure this disease. Wow. What a different time. It really was. Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, I think that that probably did um, account for why so many people died. And also this fact, which was shocking when I read about it. So some doctors prescribed aspirin as they thought that that would alleviate the symptoms. In 1918, uh, the U.S. Surgeon General, the Navy, and the Journal of American Medical Association had all recommended the use of aspirin, and medical professionals advised patients to take up to 30 grams a day, which today we now know is toxic. Wait, so, okay, so in aspirin, what's a typical dose? Like yeah. One, one pill, like, what, what is that? Well, so for comparison, the medical consensus today is that doses above four grams are unsafe. And they were taking how many? 30. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) symptoms of aspirin poisoning include hyperventilation and pulmonary edema, which is fluid buildup in the lungs. They think now that many of the deaths in October were actually caused or quickened by the aspirin poisoning. So... When they were, like, giving a bottle of aspirin and saying, take one of these and call me in the morning, they weren't just talking about one pill. They were like, take the whole freaking bottle? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have, like, an idea of how big of a pill it was. <laughs> just, like, like a, like a football-sized pill or something. Here, take this. Just eat this whole third. Yeah. Another reason why the death toll was so high was that um, World War One had left parts of the world with a shortage of physicians and other healthcare workers. And so the available healthcare workers also came down with the flu themselves. And hospitals in some areas were so overloaded with flu patients that schools, private homes, and other buildings had to be converted into makeshift hospitals, some of which were staffed only by medical students. So, you know, that's one thing that we are actually afraid of right now with the COVID-19 pandemic is that we're going to overwhelm our healthcare system. So, Well, yeah, that's kind of happening all over, isn't it? It is, yeah. um, Hospitals have too many people in them. Hmm. Yeah. So to combat this, officials in some communities imposed quarantines. They ordered citizens to wear masks and shut down public places, including schools, churches, and theaters. So sounds like what we're going through right now. Yeah. People were advised to avoid shaking hands and to stay indoors. Libraries put a halt on lending books and regulations were passed to ban spitting. I don't think... Well, wait, isn't there a law against spitting currently? Where we live, yeah. Yeah. Which I always... $200 fine. Yeah. This fine was only $5. Oh, but inflation. So is that a lot? (laughs) (laughs) Must be. I don't know. Like five dollars. That's a month's rent. Could yeah, it could have been. Like probably. Yeah. That's wild. The flu took a heavy human toll. It wiped out entire families, left countless windows and orphans in its wake. Funeral parlors were overwhelmed and bodies piled up. 
Uh, many people had to dig graves for their own family members. Talk about trauma. I know. It was also detrimental to the economy. Businesses were forced to shut down because so many employees were sick. Basic services such as mail delivery and garbage collection were hindered um, because the people were sick. And in some places, there wasn't enough farm workers to harvest crops. Um, and even state and local health departments had to close for business, which hampered efforts to chronicle the spread of the 1918 flu and provide the public with answers about it. And there was not a single place on the globe that was not affected by it. Wow. Do you want me to tell you about Canada? Yeah. So specifically talking about Canada, because that's where we live. Um, in Canada, it killed approximately 55,000 people. And this was on top of the 60,000 Canadians that were killed in service during the First World War. Oh, so so over 100,000 people died around that time. Mm -hmm. Canada, it seems like, was really ill-prepared to deal with it. Um, it seems like the rest of the world was, too. Yeah, I think we all, I mean, nobody was expecting it. No. Inadequate quarantine measures, powerlessness against the illness, and a lack of coordinated efforts from health authorities led to insurmountable chaos. And it was actually a really important event for the evolution of public health in Canada because it resulted in the creation of a federal Department of Health in 1919. And so then that makes a partnership between the various levels of government and public health becomes a joint responsibility between, you know, provinces and Canada as a federation, as its federal overarching conglomerate. <laughs> I don't know why that was the word that I chose. I don't know. That was now you're just showing off with your smartness. I guess so. It went all over Canada, spread westward across the country to even super, super remote communities. Um, some entire villages were completely wiped out by the disease. Labrador, Quebec, and many First Nation reserves were particularly hard to hit. Yeah, it was just like really devastating for people in Canada. In Canada, they also tried to do quarantine, but it wasn't very successful. Municipal and provincial authorities tried to save lives by prohibiting public gatherings and by isolating the sick, but these provisions had little effect. As the rates of infection grew, number of healthy workers declined, and before long, the Canadian economy was also paralyzed because we don't have enough people working. And so again, very similar to what was happening across the rest of the world. We just have everybody so sick and dying that they couldn't do the work needed to keep the economy going. Okay, so the disease didn't end with medical intervention. It just kind of died out on its own. Um, in 1919, the spread of it finally subsides, so it's not going around the world as quickly as it was. In early 1919 or late? Um, spring 1919. Okay, so fairly early then. Yeah. And so this was for a few reason reasons. Number one, people had caught it and then recovered, so they're now immune to the disease. Two, the people who were the most vulnerable were already dead, so it doesn't really have anything to feed off of, if we're going to think of it as like a... Super, it just killed the weak. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. Um, so it doesn't have a vulnerable population to prey upon. And three, it's a winter disease. Uh, so as the spring 1919 came up, the disease began to disappear. And fortunately, it did not come back in the winter of 1919 because it could have. Yeah. That's what happened the first time. Yeah, that would have been awful. So it just, boop, gone. Cool. Which I think is wild. Yeah. Since 1918, there have been several other influenza pandemics, but none have been as deadly. In 1957 to 1958, there were 2 million people killed worldwide, and then there was another pandemic from 1968 to 1969, where approximately 1 million people died. A flu that you and I are probably more familiar with, the H1N1 swine flu. Ah, uh, yes. I do remember when I walked into my uh, employer's office and I went to shake their hand. And they were like, eh, they like recoiled a little bit. Uh, you know, that's the biggest thing I remember about the H1N1. Yeah. <laughs> so like, that's the one you're that like, we... You're like, 
Why did you say that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that story. I thought you were going to say more, so... Oh, sorry, no, no. no it's okay. just, uh... So that occurred in 2009-2010, and there were only 284,000 deaths. So as yeah, small potatoes. Well, basically. With each modern-day pandemic, there's a new interest in the Spanish flu, or the forgotten pandemic. So like I kind of talked about at the beginning, I didn't realize how wild this disease was and the actual ramifications of it. Because like I said, it's just kind of like a blip. When we talk about World War One, and then we're like, oh yeah, the Spanish flu happened. But it was way more deadly than we expected, and it was overshadowed by the deadliness of World War One. Um, and they call it this forgotten pandemic, so named because its spread was overshadowed by the deadliness of World War One, and it was covered up by news blackouts and poor record keeping. Oh, interesting. It was also fairly short too, right? So mm-hmm. do you think that had anything to do with the fact that it's kind of forgotten, or is it like, or is that not factored in at all? Oh, you know what? I think that's a really good point that you just made. That could be part of it. Yeah, well, I just think, like, nobody's going to forget COVID because 2020 was, it was the entire year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, when people say, forever in our history books, when they look at 2020, it's going to say, that year fucking sucked. Mm-hmm. So, hard to forget that. Whereas, with this, it was a few months, which, of course, it was awful, but, you know, we've been in this shit for a year, so maybe that's part of... Yeah, like maybe you're saying like it'll affect our collective memory more than just a couple months would. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't really know for sure. All I know is that like when I in high school studied this time period, like it was literally just like a paragraph in our textbook. And then the Spanish flu killed da-da-da people. Yeah. And like we never really went into it. So when I was reading about it and doing my research for this episode, I was really shocked by the actual facts of it. And over here, COVID is going to get a spot on Grey's Anatomy, I heard, too. So, like, just, uh, it's made it big. It's, it big has. Time. It is a star. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's a star. Oh, it's made, if, you, if you can make it on Grey's Anatomy, you know you've made it. Yeah. COVID-19, speaking of, and the flu are very different. And our responses are very different as well. Medicine is better now. People in 1918 didn't know what was killing them. Um, remember, they thought it was the planets aligning awkwardly. Yeah. Uh, but in COVID-19, about two to three weeks in, we had already known what was killing people, what was making them sick. We knew what the genome looked like. We had an idea of what was going on. So, right. And also in 1918, they didn't have antibiotics. So lots of people died from secondary infections rather than the flu itself. They just couldn't get healthy. And we now have the things that will keep people healthy and stop them from dying from these secondary infections. However, I have an interesting quote um, from a. Doc- I'll be the judge if it's interesting. From a Dr. Jeremy Brown, he says that we shouldn't underestimate this outbreak. He says, quote, It had been a wake up call for everybody to pay attention to the area of emerging viruses. We certainly need to put money into research so that when the next COVID 19 occurs, whether that will be in another year or another 10 years, we will be more ready than we were today. And that's our story about the Spanish flu. Thoughts, Mr. Lawson? Yeah, I thought, again, you know, more interesting than I thought. You know, it was uh, interesting to know how many people died from it, that it was like a crap ton. And I find it interesting that, yeah, it is largely forgotten in many ways. I mean, when you said that we were doing the Spanish flu, it was like, that doesn't sound like anything I know about or care to know about. I found it really interesting the way, you know, like they say, history repeats itself, how there were so many parallels to today. 
like how they had to close down everything, you know, um, uh, I was going to say movie theaters, but that wasn't a thing, right? No, they, well, they closed down theaters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, how they closed down everything and just the economy was completely screwed. People were losing their businesses. It's just like, holy crap. Like this is something that I'll go back to that quote that you gave from Dr. Brown that they do need to put a lot more money into preparing for the future because this is going to happen again, you know? When the pandemic is gone, it will say, you haven't heard the last of me. So yeah, they do need to put a lot of money into preparing for this. And I mean, didn't Trump like a couple years ago cancel the mm -hmm. uh, people who its job were to research the mm -hmm. pandemics? Yeah. And so I'm hoping that Biden brings that back. Well, and for us as Canadians too, right? Like the fact that we don't have the ability to produce um vaccines in canada anymore so in the 80s um the conservative government of the time got rid of all of our vaccine manufacturing plants and we don't have ability to create vaccines in our country anymore and so i think that that's something that we have uh fallen short of we need to also be prepared as well right like yeah. Trudeau could create could start creating plants to create vaccines. Absolutely. I think as a Canadian, it's kind of scary knowing that our lives are essentially in the other in the hands of everyone else. Mm -hmm. We have to get our vaccines from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we can't make them does make me a little worried. I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, so we, you know, I know the vaccine's out there and stuff, but we're basically like, when the frick are we going to get it? I know they're saying like April and stuff like that, but then there's how they're going to give the vaccine to all of us also worries me. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's just uh I think we need to step up our game. Uh yeah. not only America, but us too. We need yeah. to we need to bring it on. And that's kind of what Dr. Brown was saying, right? Like it's a yeah. wake up call. We need to start putting money into these things. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so your rating out of 10. I give this 8 fun camps out of 10. <laughs> 8 fun camps. That's what it was called. Funston. I give this 8 funston camps. Out of 10. I like the fun camps. <laughs> I give this eight fun camps out of 10. I like the route that you're going with this, so that you're bringing all these parallels between the things that we're talking about and what is happening today. You know, it's been really interesting to learn about, you know, that not only do they say history repeats itself, but holy shit, it's happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> history is repeating itself. So yeah, I really liked it. So that's all we have for this week. We'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us. If you enjoyed listening to what we had to say, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, or tell your friends about us. If you want to stay in contact or see behind-the-scenes action, you can follow us on Instagram at The Reluctant Historian. Or if you want to shoot us an email with future show ideas or corrections you may have noted, you can email us at thereluctanthistorian at gmail.com. So we'll see you next week, same time, same place. Don't go to camp. It'll make you sick. <laughs> no? No, I like it. <laughs>
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.